This is reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. Phyllis Schlafly, Part 1. A Curious Woman. The last constitutional amendment ratified in the U.S. was the 27th. Most amendments take a year or two, sometimes three, to go through the ratification process. But the 27th took a whopping 202 years. It was proposed in 1789 by the very first Congress, but it didn't receive enough votes by the states at the time and was finally ratified in 1992. It's not a particularly exciting piece of constitutional law. Basically, you can't increase congressional salaries until after an election. The text reads, No law varying the compensation for the services of the senators and representatives shall take effect until an election of representatives shall have intervened. But we very nearly had a different 27th Amendment. Everyone in politics considered it a no-brainer, and in the first year that it was put before the states, a majority of them ratified it. The Equal Rights Amendment was a seemingly very simple resolution, that all citizens have equal rights under the law regardless of sex. It had huge bipartisan support and was expected to sail through the ratification process in no time. But then, one woman decided to dedicate her life to making sure that the ERA was strangled in its cradle. That woman's name was Phyllis Schlafly. It really isn't an exaggeration to say that Phyllis Schlafly is the reason the amendment didn't pass. But that's not to say that she did it alone. What she did do was mobilize thousands of grassroots conservative women activists to make the life of every politician who supported the ERA a living nightmare. She went on every program that would have her, spoke to every journalist who called, wrote pamphlets and held trainings and organized protests, all with the singular goal of defeating the ERA. And she won. And in the process of winning, she built an activist empire. You ever meet someone who just excels at every single thing they do? Who makes it all look easy? Who seems like they never run out of energy and never feel self-conscious? Someone who just does everything perfectly? That's Phyllis. Just reading about her is irritating because of how inhumanly flawless she was. Even her political enemies were in awe of her capabilities and her raw power. You can say a lot of things about Phyllis Schlafly, and I'm going to. But one thing you gotta respect about her is how dedicated and effective she was. I would go so far as to say that she was one of the most influential conservatives of the 20th century. The face of the modern-day Republican Party has been shaped, in large part, by a housewife raising six children in Alton, Illinois. There aren't a ton of great biographies on Schlafly's life, but the two I'm drawing on here are The Sweetheart of the Silent Majority by Carol Felsenthal and Phyllis Schlafly and Grassroots Conservatism by Donald Critchlow. Those, plus a few dozen articles, will be the main basis for my discussion of Phyllis Schlafly's life. But, lest you worry that there won't be enough content for a full series on her, don't. She wrote 26 books, published a monthly newsletter for 50 years, was syndicated all over the country. Basically, she was so prolific that I doubt I could cover even half of her original works without turning this show into a Phyllis Schlafly bio podcast. So we're going to start this series with an overview of her early life, her family, education, core beliefs, and then spend the rest of the series delving into her writing and her activism. 
Schlafly wasn't just an accomplished writer, she was a doer. And by the end of this series, you'll wish she had been on our side. A crucial element to understanding Phyllis Schlafly is that she was as liberated as any radical feminist of her time. She was not one to sit quietly and do whatever she was told, and she never felt like her gender held her back in any significant way. At least, that's what she said. Her accomplishments were her own, she believed, and anyone who sat around whining about the unfairness of the world was just playing a victim card that Schlafly's deck seemed to lack. When asked if there was anything redeeming about the women's movement, she replied, Nothing. The claim that American women are downtrodden and unfairly treated is the fraud of the century. Some of these women were lazy, some were brainwashed, some were just punching above their weight, but none of them were facing any real discrimination. But something Phyllis left out of her, if I can do it, so can you, narrative, was the huge number of advantages she had early in life. Phyllis Stewart was born in 1924 in St. Louis, Missouri, to a solidly middle-class family. Her mother, Dottie Stewart, described her as a very happy baby who never fussed or got colicky, and her parents doted on her and her sister, Odile. She was always smiling as a baby, a trait that followed her into adulthood. Adult Phyllis was known for her cool demeanor and grace under fire, which really pissed off her political opponents. Betty Friedan, arguably her biggest adversary, once said, Phyllis Schlafly is such a fake. She's always smiling. Anyone who smiles that much has got to be a fraud. It's enough to make you want to punch her in the mouth. A lot of people wanted to punch Phyllis in the mouth. The Stewarts were by all accounts a very loving family. Phyllis developed quickly for a child. She was very precocious from a young age, very intelligent and well-mannered. The Stewarts had a very stable and well-adjusted family life. But then, the Great Depression struck, and Phyllis's father, Bruce, lost his job of 25 years at Westinghouse. At 51 years old, Bruce's job prospects were not good. So, the girls went to Los Angeles to stay with Dottie's wealthy uncle while Bruce lived with his in-laws and looked for work. But after a year of crisscrossing St. Louis with a pocket full of want ads and nothing to show for it, and with Dottie's parents starting to feel the burden of caring for their son-in-law, the Stewart women returned home and Dottie started her own job hunt. Despite having two degrees in library science, Dottie could only find work selling draperies in a department store for $12 a week. This experience was one of the reasons that Phyllis bristled at the mid-century feminists who placed so much emphasis on women's rights to work. Her mother had worked out of necessity. She would have much preferred to stay home and keep house and care for her family. The feminist goal of frivolous, her word, self-fulfillment in the workplace was anathema to everything Phyllis thought a woman ought to care about. And in fact, a lot of working-class women felt the same way, as we'll see when we get to her activism around the Equal Rights Amendment. Eventually, Dottie was able to put her teaching certificate to use at a public elementary school. And then in 1937, she got a better-paying job as a librarian at the St. Louis Art Museum. By then, the Stewarts were saving money by moving from the comfortable suburbs to an apartment in a working-class neighborhood in St. Louis. It was Dottie's work ethic and indefatigable spirit that kept the Stewarts afloat during those rough years. Of course, it didn't hurt that her family was well-off, and Dottie had benefited from a prestigious private school education before being sent off to university. Dottie was practically a blue blood, 
and had a lot of family connections to fall back on. The Stuart clan was very proud of the fact that Dottie could trace her entire lineage back to the American Revolution. Between the wealthy uncle, the parents able to take Bruce in, and Dottie's credentials bought and paid for by her family, the Stuart family had a serious leg up over many others during the Great Depression. In the meantime, Bruce took on odd jobs intermittently and worked on his design for a rotary engine, which he eventually patented, bringing in a lot more money for the family. All throughout his struggles during the Depression, Bruce refused to go on the dole under FDR's New Deal because, as he said, his grandchildren would be forced to pay for Roosevelt's welfare state. As Phyllis's sister Odile said, Poor as we were, he was a Republican. Because I guess, I guess we're just individualists. We feel that people can do anything they want if they try, work at it. Which is, I think, opposed to a philosophy that somebody will do it for you. Bruce's friend said that free enterprise wasn't just a political belief for him, but an article of faith. But the problem with this line of thinking, and much of the contradiction in conservative political ideologies, is that the Stewart family didn't simply pull up their bootstraps and get the job done through rugged individualism. Leaving aside the fact that the Stewarts were able to lean on wealthy family members during the height of the Depression, and the fact that New Deal policies improved the economy in a general sense, rising tides and lifting boats and such, Bruce's first steady job after those lean years was as an electrical engineer for the War Production Board, a government agency established by none other than the tax-and-spend, grandchild-enslaving Franklin Delano Roosevelt. When the WPB was shuttered in 1945, Bruce went on to work for the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. But don't let the word corporation fool you. The RFC was formed by Herbert Hoover in 1932, with the express purpose of saving failing banks and businesses after the 1929 Wall Street crash. Then, Roosevelt came along and expanded the agency into a massive government lending entity that serviced everything from banks to agriculture, exporters, businesses, and disaster relief. The RFC was able to loan money without needing approval from Congress, and dipped its toes into economic sectors as diverse as mortgage services, heavy machinery, and utilities companies. Not very free enterprise, if you ask me. These two agencies were crucial New Deal programs, the kind of big government that Republicans today, and certainly Republicans of the Schlafly persuasion, would condemn as socialist. But apparently, they weren't too socialist for Bruce Stewart. Thanks to these advantages and Dottie's unstoppable work ethic, the Stewart girls were able to attend the very prestigious City House in St. Louis. It was an all-girls Catholic school much more respected than the average parish school. City House attracted all the wealthiest families in the area, and the education was well-rounded and rigorous. The girls learned everything from classic literature and mathematics to foreign languages and Bible study. They also learned poise, which was a trait Phyllis would be known for all her life. She thrived in the regimented and challenging environment at City House, writing at the age of 16, All my school years were most happy and most full. Meanwhile, at the age of 16, my diary was filled with complaints that my mother was a tyrant for setting my curfew at 10 p.m. I want to pause here to emphasize another advantage Phyllis had over other women that is easy to overlook. 
Her parents placed a lot of importance on their daughters getting an education. This was a fairly progressive view at the time. Not every young woman had the access to education and resources that Phyllis did. Not all of them had supportive parents who viewed their daughters as more than grandchild manufacturers. While Phyllis showed a lot of gratitude to her parents for encouraging her and her sister to work hard and excel in anything they wanted, she seems to have never grappled with the fact that a lot of women seeking liberation from patriarchy weren't so lucky. According to her classmates, Phyllis was both admirable and intimidating, which is pretty much how everyone would see Phyllis into her adulthood. And if Phyllis learned anything during her years at City House, it was that anyone could accomplish anything so long as they dedicated themselves to the task. Looking at her higher education career, you might be tempted to believe her. After graduating from City House, Phyllis won a four-year scholarship to Maryville College, an all-girls school run by the same order of nuns as City House. But Phyllis was, for the first time in her young life, pretty miserable there. The initiation rites and social events seemed frivolous to her, and the curriculum was nowhere near as rigorous and challenging as she had hoped. After one year at Maryville, Phyllis transferred to Washington University in St. Louis to study political science. She was thrilled to be competing with men in the classroom and was determined to succeed. But the transition wasn't just academically challenging. The cushy four-year scholarship that Maryville offered was a thing of the past, and now Phyllis needed to find serious employment to cover tuition and living expenses, not to mention the fact that she was intent on going to graduate school, which she would need to save money for. So she went out and got probably the coolest job a woman in 1942 could get, working nights at a munitions manufacturer as a gunner testing rifles and machine guns. Phyllis bragged that it was a man's job, though of course she only got the job because most of the men had just gone off to war. The schedule was brutal, eight-hour night shifts and eight hours of schoolwork each day. In fact, Phyllis didn't decide her first year that she had a burning desire to study political science. She needed a 10 a.m. course to fit her work schedule, and that just so happened to be poli-sci. I wonder what modern American history would look like if a chemistry class had been in that slot. During her time at the munitions factory, Phyllis was promoted five times, and her salary rose from $105 per month to $182 in the two years she worked there. The men at the factory started at $125 a month, and even though Phyllis generally believed in equal pay for equal work, she didn't feel discriminated against at all. The men were required to do more physically strenuous labor, and to Phyllis, this meant that the work wasn't equal. This is the first bit of experience that will lead Phyllis directly to the Equal Rights Amendment battle. Men and women aren't equal in every way, and each gets certain perks in the workplace and in the world that follow the natural order of things. Phyllis took the job out of necessity, but she did say that the experience piqued her interest in national defense, which became her earliest crusade when she waded into politics. After just two years, plus the one from Maryville, Phyllis graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree with a full set of honors and a fellowship to Radcliffe College, the women's counterpart to Harvard. Her only B was in physical education. There was a swim test, and Phyllis was afraid of water. She later regretted not passing the test and took up a swim class at the YWCA, because it seemed she was incapable of leaving anything unfinished. One of her professors wrote her a letter of recommendation for the fellowship, which amounted to, 
Wow, she's really impressive. For a girl. Miss Stewart is a person of very unusual attainments. Her intellectual capacity is distinctly remarkable. I have no hesitation whatsoever in saying that Miss Stewart is the most capable woman student we have had in this department in ten years. The letter worked, and Phyllis won a fellowship that paid $500 for two terms. Combined with her savings from the munition factory, she was able to pay for a year of tuition and living expenses at Radcliffe. She was also offered a position as graduate resident scholar at Columbia, which paid even better, $700, but she'd had her heart set on Harvard and earned her master's degree in just one year. Her professors tried to get her to pursue her doctorate at Radcliffe, but she couldn't afford it, and, moreover, she was tired of academia. She was ready to put some of her learning to use, and now that she was an expert in all things politics and government, Phyllis headed to Washington, D.C. to find a full-time job. But working directly for the government didn't appeal to Phyllis at all. She told a school friend at the time that the government was bloated and overly bureaucratic, and that anyone who would work for such a broken machine was immoral and mooching off the American taxpayer. I wonder if that thinking extended to her own father. So Phyllis found a private sector job that was government-adjacent, the American Enterprise Association now known as the American Enterprise Institute. The AEA was, as it is now, a conservative think tank aiming to influence politicians in favor of neoconservative policies. Phyllis was right at home. The year she spent working in Washington was incredibly formative for Phyllis, and she was grateful for the opportunity to put her learning to use, but she eventually grew tired of the single woman's life and moved back to St. Louis. Once again on the job hunt, she came across a young lawyer in her district, Claude Bakewell, who was challenging a Democratic incumbent in the House of Representatives. He was looking for a campaign manager, and 22-year-old Phyllis, who was a woman and had no experience working on a campaign, was not an obvious choice. And yet, she managed to convince him to hire her. He recounted, I was impressed by her incredible knowledge of the most nitty-gritty details of St. Louis ward politics. Here was this beautiful girl sitting in my living room analyzing what I had to do to win, and she had so much plain good political sense, I had to keep looking at her to remind myself I wasn't talking to a fat, old, cigar-chomping ward healer. The campaign put the New Deal and communism at the forefront, accusing the Democrats of allowing communist infiltrators into the government, of abetting Soviets and allowing them to steer American policies, and attacking the so-called planned economy and government giveaways of the FDR era. That year, 1946, the Republicans won control of both chambers of Congress for the first time since 1930. And thanks to Phyllis, Bakewell went along with them. While running Bakewell's campaign, Phyllis picked up two other jobs, one at the First National Bank in St. Louis and another at the St. Louis Union Trust Company. At the bank, Phyllis cataloged their library, and at the trust company, she produced their monthly newsletter. She claimed it was a nonpartisan publication, but with titles like The Social Welfare State, Profits and Economic Progress, The Significance of Our Defeat in China, and The Left Wing and the Bill of Rights, it's pretty hard to take that seriously. Describing the newsletter at the time, she wrote, We believe that the people we serve are basically anti-New Deal. The continued success of the St. Louis Union Trust Company is obviously dependent on the preservation of a society which exalts personal integrity and freedom, 
rather than a society which idealizes the all-powerful state. Yeah, sounds totally nonpartisan. Her work at the trust company showed Phyllis that she had a flair for writing, and her time at the bank honed other skills that would be crucial to Phyllis's success in politics, public speaking and outreach to women. One of her roles at the bank was reaching out to women's groups and offering instruction on how to handle their family's financial affairs. Her experience motivating women to take direct action would prove to be bottled lightning in the years ahead. But perhaps the most important craft Phyllis honed during this time was her ability to research and produce an effective advocacy newsletter. As we'll see later, the Phyllis Schlafly Report would eventually become a powerful tool for mobilizing grassroots activists on a number of causes, the ERA being one of the most famous. In one of her St. Louis Trust Company newsletters, she wrote, Before the meaning of freedom was debased by neoliberals, freedom and responsibility went hand in hand. The man of modest means who sends his children to college chooses to skimp and save and sacrifice to do so. The left wing rejects responsibility as too harsh. Freedom under this definition is freedom to gratify one's desires without making the slightest sacrifice or suffering the slightest inconvenience. Again and again we are told by the left wing that our people are not free, that they are subject to the compulsion of their environment and the circumstances under which they live, that they do not have a chance in life that they are wage slaves, and that they will only be free when the state will give them all that they want without effort and without limit. Again, she called this nonpartisan with a straight face. The Trust Company newsletter had a wide audience, 6,000 people who were prominent in the business world. One of them, a 39-year-old lawyer and bachelor named Fred Schlafly, was impressed by the newsletter's message. So in 1949, he decided to take a trip down to St. Louis to meet the guy responsible for such a refreshing take on conservatism. Imagine his surprise when he was met with a beautiful 24-year-old woman who just so happened to be ready to settle down and start a family. According to Phyllis, marriage is the best deal for women the world has yet devised. And the special benefits women receive under patriarchy would be a cornerstone of her argument against the ERA. Phyllis and Fred had a short courtship, meeting in April and marrying in October. Despite there being 25 years between them, they clicked right away over shared beliefs in politics and religion. Fred was a confirmed bachelor, a man who has no intentions to marry. But he fell head over heels for Phyllis. He wrote at the time, Not only was I a bashful bachelor, but I was also a lawyer bachelor, which made me even more cautious. Then I met the girl. I didn't believe in love at first sight, so I took a second look. I gave her a look that you could have poured on a waffle. I fell for her so hard and fast that I didn't have time to pull the ripcord on the emergency chute before she landed me. This was no ordinary courtship. Fred and Phyllis were intellectuals, and their correspondence with each other was incredibly nerdy. Early on, Phyllis sent him not a love letter, but an essay she wrote titled The Meaning of Liberalism. They wrote each other in rhyming verse, but it wasn't roses are red, violets are blue type stuff. Responding to one of his verses, Phyllis wrote, Mr. Schlafly, you thus deny that you are a liberal, pleading you don't belong in that wastrel group, for the liberals have borrowed and stolen a line, 
lied and cheated the people and made them a dupe. Crying progressive democracy and freedom from want, they've corrupted our language in line with the red. But they are not descended from Jefferson and Locke, to whom freedom meant more than state-issued bread. Like I said, very nerdy. Fred struggled with proposing to Phyllis. As a longtime bachelor, he wasn't accustomed to courting, and he wanted it to be romantic, but also suited to their very particular relationship. So, Fred told Phyllis to listen carefully to the next Sunday church sermon. Whether he somehow knew what it would be or just got lucky, who knows? I'd hazard a guess that he spoke with the priest. But that Sunday, the gospel was on the parable of the unjust steward. The content of the parable is neither relevant nor interesting, but one line from the passage states, For thou canst be steward no longer. Phyllis took it as a sign, and immediately called Fred to tell him, We'll trade Stuart for Schlafly as soon as you can teach me how to spell it. And you gotta admit, that's pretty cute. Phyllis was a very traditional woman when it came to her beliefs about gender roles and the place of women in society as mothers, wives, and homemakers first. But at the altar, Phyllis broke with convention. Instead of promising to obey her husband, as the bride's vows usually stated at the time, she promised to cherish him. Fred had already been warned about the perils of marrying a well-educated, opinionated, ambitious woman like Phyllis. Of course, those were all the things he loved about her, so it wasn't much of a deterrent. And he never seemed bothered by living in the shadow of his wife, even when publications teased him, calling him Mr. Phyllis. Something called the Underdog Club named him Underdog of the Year, calling him the man behind Phyllis Schlafly and praising him for being one of the number two persons who contributed so much to one of the number one persons we've heard so much about. Very eloquent. Fred maintained a lifelong involvement in politics, but he wasn't interested in operating on the level of his wife. He still engaged in political efforts, particularly opposition to communism, such as his membership in the American Bar Association's Committee on Communist Tactics, Strategy, and Objectives. Really rolls right off the tongue. But in general, Fred kept a low profile, never looking to share the spotlight with Phyllis. Despite her independence, Phyllis claimed she never did anything without her husband's support. She would begin speeches and debates with liberals with, I'd like to thank my husband Fred for allowing me to be here, just to piss off the libs. To friends and allies, she called him her number one advisor, and dinner conversations at the Schlafly home were full of terrifying communists, corrupt liberals, and fanatical lesbian feminists hell-bent on destroying the family unit and maybe the rest of society along with it. The two were also deeply religious, and their Catholicism informed their political beliefs to the core. Phyllis's own beliefs about politics and religion were fundamentally shaped by Fred's. She came into the marriage a religious, conservative, intellectual woman, but all of those traits were honed by years of spirited conversation with her husband. But Fred was more than Phyllis's debate partner. He was an unpaid intern on nearly every project she took on. He gave the Stop ERA movement countless hours of free legal counsel, filing several suits on their behalf. He read and freely edited nearly everything she wrote. He helped her financially and emotionally in all her endeavors. Without Fred's support, Phyllis Schlafly likely would have been like any other Midwest housewife. A very intelligent one, for sure, but not all men in the 1960s and 70s would have supported their wives traveling all over the country and burying themselves in books. 
It's another instance of, I think, Phyllis not acknowledging how liberated by circumstance she was. What she attributed to hard work and positive thinking was just as much a product of having the right men in her life. But the role Phyllis was proudest of, at least to hear her tell it, was that of mother. The Schlafleys had six children, and Phyllis ran a tight ship in their household. The children were not allowed to have anything made from white flour or white sugar, save for birthday cakes, and one particularly health-conscious year her son Roger received a loaf of homemade bread with a candle sticking out of it. The children ate hot oat cereal for breakfast, scrambled eggs for a snack, peeled tomatoes, and tuna fish on whole wheat bread Phyllis made herself. Because idle hands are the devil's playthings, their schedules were jam-packed with music lessons, athletics, projects, sightseeing, and anything else to keep them busy. They were only allowed to watch certain TV programs, especially those with a religious meaning, and even then only on special occasions. Phyllis was known to closely monitor and even veto her children's choice of friends well into their teenage years. For dinner, everyone showed up well-dressed and on time, no bare feet, no t-shirts. Conversation focused on the children, and they were expected to report back on the day's activities. No, how was school? Good, in the Schlafly home. One family friend described the household as old-fashioned, like a manor in Victorian England. As she outlined in her book, The Power of the Positive Woman, which we'll get to later in the series, Phyllis saw no higher calling for a woman than to care for a family. And according to her children, she was an excellent mother, despite the draconian rules they grew up under. But while Phyllis certainly believed that a woman's place was in the home, she was also eventually convinced that a woman's place just might be in the house as well. Even Fred, knowing what he was getting himself into, could not have predicted just how much of Phyllis's life would be spent not as a mother and a homemaker, but as a fierce activist who would reshape the whole of American politics. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it. And consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There, you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates, and send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is written and produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time...